You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. This is week eight, covering Matthew chapters 21 through 23. Good morning, friends. You'll have to forgive me. I'm recovering over some sickness, so I may drink more water than normal and my voice may be a little more hoarse, but we'll get through. I am delighted to be with you this morning. I wasn't sure if I would make it, so I'm really excited that I can be here. We are in the final week of Jesus's earthly life, and the majority of our text uh, up until this point has been focused on the three years of Jesus's earthly ministry. And now we're going to slow down, and we're going to spend the last uh, eight chapters looking at the final week of Jesus's life. Be sure to check out that Holy Week chart in the front of your workbooks if you haven't done so yet. It's very helpful. So the setting for our entire passage today is Jerusalem. It's into the city that Jesus rides amidst shouts of rejoicing, and it's for this city that Jesus laments just three chapters later. These events are happening during the week leading up to Passover, and during Passover, Jerusalem is packed full of travelers that would have come from all over to celebrate in this holy city. And um, commentators tell us that the city generally would have had about six times the number of residents. So imagine a city that is bursting at the seams for the Olympics. That's what this would have been like. People are everywhere. It's hard to get through. There's people camped in tents, filling the countrysides and surrounding Jerusalem. Jesus is staying in Bethany. And on your map, you can see that Bethany is just outside of Jerusalem. So we're going to see Jesus going back and forth between Jerusalem and Bethany. This morning, we're going to look at three significant acts of authority by Jesus, and then three parables, and then five questions, and seven woes. It's a lot. So let's dive in. You're going to want to have your scripture journal handy. We're going to go through it, um, kind of like Christy did two weeks ago. So we're going to start in Matthew 21, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. So a donkey is an unusually lowly animal for a king to be riding on. But in doing so, Jesus is showing both his humility and he's also fulfilling the prophecy from the book of Zechariah. As he rides in, the crowd shout, Hosanna, which means save now, please save. Jesus is a humble king and he is mounted on a donkey, the beast of burden. And he's going into Jerusalem, where he is going to bear our burdens on the cross. This entry into Jerusalem is an audacious thing that Jesus is doing. He is proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. Up until this point, Jesus has pulled back. He's withdrawn when the Pharisees tried to trap him or the people sought to crown him. But now, in perfect sovereignty, he knows that this is the time. He knows that this triumphal entry is going to lead to his death. And he knows that the crown he's going to wear is one of thorns. And the coronation ceremony is going to be a cross. And so he rides in 
and a glorious picture of authority and startling humility. And the city stirs with the question, who is this? Next, we see Jesus exert his authority in the brazen act of clearing the temple. The temple was central to life and the worship of, Jew of the Jewish people. It symbolized the meeting place between God and man. And here you can see a picture of the temple in Jesus' day. So we're going to continue on in Matthew 21, 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came in to him in the temple and he healed them. People had come from far and near to worship the Lord at Passover, but instead of facilitating their worship, these Jewish leaders had made this place a place of business and hollow spiritual practices. They had robbed and stolen God's glory, and instead they sought their own gain. Jesus quotes from Jeremiah 7:11 when he calls them a den of thieves. They're hypocrites, and they think that their outer righteousness can cover their wicked hearts. The courtyard where Jesus is standing in and these practices are happening, it is the only place that the Gentiles were allowed in to worship. But when Jesus enters this courtyard, he finds an open air market and it's not being used for worship, but for greed. The Jews are using the Gentile space to charge exorbitant prices for sacrifices and they're heaping heavy burdens on the people. And so Jesus forcibly stops these ungodly practices. And who comes in? The blind and the lame. Those who had previously been cast out are now welcomed in by the Savior. Our final act of authority is in Matthew 21, 18. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Jesus is hungry. He sees a bare tree. He gets mad at it and he curses it. Sounds a lot like a two-year-old when they don't get their snack, right? What's going on here? Why is Jesus so angry at this tree for not producing fruit? Jesus had fasted for 40 days in the wilderness a few chapters back. Well, what might look like a fit of anger here is actually meant to be an object lesson to the disciples. So let's talk about fig trees. Fig trees were quite common in Israel during Jesus' day. And around March or April, they would produce these little buds that were edible and they would be there before the figs would come in. So remember, Passover, like Easter, uh, happens in March or April. And so you would, um, sorry, and a sign that a fig tree would have these little buds were the leaves. The leaves would come in after these little buds had started to appear. So if you would see a fig tree covered in leaves in March or April, you would be, expect to be able to eat these little first fruits. So, when Jesus sees this fig tree from a distance, it appears to be in season. But when he comes close to it, he sees that it's actually not bearing fruit. 
and it's worthless, so he curses it. Do you see what these two acts have in common? The fig tree and the temple? How they both only have the appearance of fruitfulness rather than actual fruit? The temple was standing in all of its grandeur and from the outside it looked like a place of worship, but inside it housed a den of thieves. It was filled with religious leaders robbing the Lord of his glory and taking gain for themselves. The disciples see this withered fig tree and they are amazed at Jesus's power. And so Jesus tells them in Matthew 21, verse 21, and Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. What does this mean? Does it mean that as long as we have enough faith, we can get whatever we want? If we don't get the answer that we want from our prayers, does it mean that we didn't have enough faith? The dictionary defines faith for us as a complete trust or confidence in someone or something. It's allegiance to duty or a person. So faith for the believer is confidence in the character of God. This grows over time as we entrust ourselves to him, we grow to trust him more. It is the object of our faith that matters, not the amount of faith that we possess. Our confidence is in God's willingness and power to respond. He is able. Doubt then is defined as a lack of confidence in someone or something. It's distrust. It's the opposite of faith. It's what happens when we look to ourselves or the world for our confidence rather than to God. The mountains in these statements, they're, uh, this statement and the one in 17, they're object lessons. They imply that the Lord can do what seems impossible to human eyes. The disciples are going to see the Lord do some impossible things. Think of the book of Acts. He moves the gospel forward in amazing ways, but they also experience great pain and suffering along the way. We know from other parts of scripture that the Lord always acts in accordance with his will. He knows what is good and right and best for us. So this verse doesn't mean that if I muster up enough faith, the Lord is gonna give me what I want or a life without hardship. But what it does mean is if that we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, we will see the Lord work. We'll see him conform us to his image. We'll see him save those who are dead in their sins. We'll see him working in our lives and providing for us in amazing ways. As I told you, as I wrote this teaching, our family got hit with sickness. I was sick. I had a mounting amount of work to finish. This teaching was honestly just not coming together and I had several sick kids to care for. This is the story of our lives, right? Things like this happen, much worse things happen. So how do we pray the prayer of faith in everyday moments like this when it seems like we have a mountain in front of us? Well, I had to cry out to the Lord for help. I had to ask the spirit to give me faith when I was doubting in the Lord's goodness for my life in that moment. 
I also had to ask others to pray for me and remind me of truth when it felt hard to on my own. My sickness did not magically go away, but I was filled with a settledness and a confidence in God that he was with me and he was in control. None of this was outside of his hands. And this is what we do over and over again in our daily lives, right? As we experience these trials, they teach us um, to trust in the goodness of God and they grow our faith. So next, Jesus enters back into Jerusalem and the temple. And we begin an exchange between Jesus and the Jewish leaders that's going to last for the remainder of our text this morning. And this is the last of Jesus' public teachings before his death. So we're gonna find four questions that come from four groups of Jewish leaders. We've just looked at several acts of authority by Jesus, and the first group to question Jesus are the chief priests and the elders. And they start off by asking a question that is really going to be central to the rest of the discourse between them and Jesus. And that's in Matthew 21, 23, starting in the middle of the verse. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them. I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? These religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus. What are they trying to get him to say? Well, they're trying to get him to say that he is God. Because if he says that he is God, that's blasphemy, and they can arrest him for it. They don't want to listen to what Jesus has to say. They are afraid of him, and they just want to remove him. Don't you just love Jesus' response to them, though? It's so sharp and so wise. He does not get caught in their trap, but rather, like all good teachers, he asks them a question to make them think. These Pharisees are living in fear. They're in fear of people and they're afraid of losing their power. And so these supposedly wise men of Israel answer with, I don't know. And so Jesus, Jesus refuses to answer their question plainly, but instead he uses three parables to both reveal and conceal the answer. And each of these parables has two contrasting groups, those who assume that they're going to receive the favored position and those who are surprisingly promoted to it. All of these parables build on one another. So first, we have the two sons. The first son refuses his father's instruction, but then changes his mind and he goes. These are the tax collectors and the prostitutes. They were far from the Lord, but they changed their minds. The Greek word here for changed mind is repent. They have faith and they repent and believe. The second son, he says he's gonna obey, but then he doesn't. These are the Pharisees. They claim to worship God, but their hearts and their actions are far from him. Their works prove that their claim of faith is empty. They too have an opportunity to repent and yet they refuse. Faith without works is no faith at all. It's only an empty claim. The second parable highlights a pattern from Israel's history. And 2 Chronicles 15 to 16 tells us, 
The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. The tenants here in this parable are Israel and the Lord is the master who has patiently and compassionately sent prophets all the way up to John the Baptist, calling the people to turn back to him. The Israelites rejected the prophets. They refused to listen to them and they killed them. All of these prophets, they lead up to the climax of Israel's rejection, the rejection of the Messiah, Jesus. And in, in rejecting Jesus, they are also rejecting the Father. And the Father gives the kingdom to another. The kingdom of heaven will be given to those who are producing fruit. The temple, the icon of, this, of, empty faith, of the empty faith that these Pharisees possess will be destroyed. And the Lord is going to build a new temple through the church upon the cornerstone of Christ for all those who repent and believe. Lastly, we have the parable of the wedding feast. Jesus is the bridegroom. And an invitation to come is given first to the Jews, but they refuse. And so servants are sent out to invite all who will come, and these are the Gentiles. However, when the guests enter, there is one that is not dressed with a wedding garment. What is this wedding garment? What must we be dressed in in order to stand before the king? Well, we must be robed in the righteousness of Christ. We must be dressed in true faith in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. The invitation to the kingdom is given to all who will receive it, but it is not based on merit, but on the righteousness of Christ. So to recap these three parables, the Jewish leaders and the state of Israel, they say that they believe in God, yet their faith has no fruit, no works, and so it's no faith at all, merely an empty claim. The Lord patiently and compassionately sent prophets to open their eyes to the true state of their hearts and call them to repentance, but they refused. And so God the Father has taken his presence away from Israel and he is building a new metaphorical temple through the church built on the cornerstone and foundation of Christ. The invitation to the kingdom is open to all who will receive it, but you must be dressed in the righteousness of Christ through repentance by faith. All right, and now for another test from our religious leaders. The next group is a mixture of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Remember, the Herodians support the Roman government. So we're in Matthew 22:16. We're gonna again start in the middle of 16 with their question. Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Do you hear their flattery? They think they can trap Jesus because he speaks the truth. Carrying on in 18. 
But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is, is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. This is radical. Do you remember the kind of rulers that these people are living under? Do you remember the unjust treatment of John the Baptist? We had you look at Romans 13 in your homework. As believers, we live as exiles in this world. This world is not our home. We are awaiting the fulfillment of the kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. But while we're here, the Lord calls us to respect our governments, even corrupt ones. The coin is stamped with the image of Caesar and it has earthly value. The word for render here is literally to give back. They are to give back to the government what is owed for the jobs that they are doing for society. What's the Lord's? What's stamped with his image? We are. What does the Lord want from us? Total devotion, allegiance. He wants our hearts. And so sisters, I encourage you the next time you find yourself frustrated with our government or the laws that are imposed on you to ask yourself these questions. Am I living in fear? Am I more concerned with giving the Lord what is his or with the corruption of this earthly government? I wanna tell you something. The fair and just government that you long for, it is a good longing. Take it to the Lord. Cry out to him when injustice prevails. You are longing for the good and perfect king, but he will not be found on this earth. So put your time and your emotion and your effort into serving King Jesus. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Next, the Sadducees come with what seems like a far-fetched question. Let's be honest. Most of us have been sad about this one at some point, right? There will be no marriage in heaven. Rather, we will be like the angels, neither married nor given in marriage. Why is this? Why will marriage not be in heaven? Ephesians 5 tells us that marriage is meant to point us to a greater reality of Christ and the church. Christ is our bridegroom, and we await the marriage supper of the Lamb. Our satisfaction in Christ will far surpass any earthly relationship that we have. So the last to question Jesus is a Pharisee, and the Pharisees are the keepers of the law. And so he asks Jesus a question in Matthew 22, 36. He says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love the, your neighbor as yourself. This is the heart of the law. All of the rest of the law can fit into these two categories. The first command is the Shema, and it comes from Deuteronomy. The Jews would have had this over the doorposts in their homes, and they would have carried a copy of it with them. And the parts of the person that are mentioned here, they are um, meant to be representative of loving God with our whole being. 
not just our outer actions, but our inner thoughts as well. Jesus adds to it by saying, the second is like it, loving your neighbor as yourself. True love for God will express itself in a love for people. 1 John 4.20 tells us, Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Our love for God is complemented and completed by our love for people. How are we to love others? As we love ourselves. And how do we want to be loved and treated by others? Preferentially. We don't simply want what is fair. We want what is best. We want preferential treatment. This is how we're called to love others. Now Jesus is going to turn the table on them, and he asks the Pharisees a question. He asks an easy question first. Who is the Messiah? This is easy, of course. He's the son of David. The Jews knew that the Messiah would be coming from the line of David. But then Jesus asks them, how David could call his son Lord. For him to call his son Lord would imply that he's not just a man, but God. Through his parables, Jesus has stated that he is the son of God. And now, through this question, he's proving that he is the Christ. And he is God. He holds all authority. Next, Jesus accuses the Pharisees of placing heavy burdens on the people. It's quite the opposite of the yoke that he promised in chapter 11. These Pharisees, they love the praises of man. They have placed themselves in a position of authority where only God should be. And so Jesus warns his followers not to give their allegiance to a man. He calls them to follow in his humble footsteps. This is the call for us as believers in the church. We're called to humility, as Chris told us last week. I want to recognize here, though, that the sins that these Pharisees committed, they can still happen in the church today. Not everyone who rises to leadership in the church truly knows the Lord. And not every church in America is actually preaching the gospel. So if you've grown up in a church with legalistic standards and it's causing you to question your faith, please come and talk to us or talk to your table leader. We would love to help you wrestle through these questions. Lastly, we end our section with seven woes from Jesus. What is a woe? A woe is the opposite of the blessed state. Do you remember when Christy talked about this? She gave us this definition of blessed. The desirable position of the believer for having received God's gracious extension of himself and all his benefits. As believers, we experience goodness because we have received the Lord. The hardships of this life, they're bearable because we have been given him. So then... If as believers we have accepted the invitation to this blessed state, this life of goodness in the presence and communion of God, what then is the opposite of that? Separation from God. It's emptiness. This is what the woes are. They are the mournful state that these Pharisees find themselves in. 
Jesus is not cursing them in anger, but he's warning them and pleading with them that condemnation is coming. They're hypocrites. They have neglected the weightier matters of the law. They have concerned themselves with outward righteousness. They look righteous on the outside, but inside they're filled with self-indulgence. Jesus turns to the city and he laments the state that they are in. Matthew 23, 37, look at last. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you are not willing. See, your house is left desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He does not delight in the condemnation of the wicked. This is the end of his public appeal to Jerusalem. He has come as the Messiah, but they have rejected him. There will be no further relationship between Israel and God unless they respond to his call with repentance and name him as Lord. So what do we do with this teaching? First, I give you the same charge I did last time I was up here. Test and see whether you know the Lord. Have you given your full allegiance to him? Or are you merely trying to earn your, your, to earn your own righteousness? Are you running after the world and hiding out in the church? Come to him before it's too late. Secondly, for those of us who are in the faith, what do we do with this? Well, I would say to us that we too can use these things to not neglect the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. These woes can help us spot hypocrisy in our own lives. We may not be hypocrites, those who indulge in hypocrisy, but there may still be areas of our life where hypocrisy exists. And we need to heed the words of 1 Peter 2, 1 to 3. Therefore, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave for pure spiritual milk so that you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So sisters, if we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, let us surrender every area of our lives to the authority of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we um, recognize your son, Jesus, as king. We stand in awe of his glorious authority and his startling humility. Lord, we thank you that we uh, can be united to you because of the blood of Christ, that we can be robed in his righteousness, that we can return, turn and repent from our sins. Father, I ask by your spirit that if there are any in this room that have not received Christ, Lord, that your spirit would illuminate their eyes uh, to see him, to recognize him as Lord, to submit to him, to repent and to turn. Lord, we thank you for the blessed life that you offer, not one without hardship, not one without pain, not one without sacrifice, Lord, but one where you are there, Lord, and there is joy in that. 
There is joy through the trials, Lord, because we know that you are with us. You comfort us, Lord, and you conform us to your image through these things. Lord, I pray that your spirit would illuminate areas of hypocrisy in our lives, Lord, that would not lead to uh, self-condemnation, Lord, that, but that we would take that to you, Lord, that we would re- receive uh, the forgiveness that Christ offers and that we um, would turn and walk in your ways, Lord. Would we desire you more than anything else this world has to offer? Father, would you continue to turn our eyes back to you? We are prone to wander, Lord, we know it. Would you help us return to the Lord that we love? So we ask all of these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.